Welcome to Golden Gems with Dave Shaw and Bill Hansen. We review each week the career and personal life of one of the great unforgettable artists of the golden days of radio. So please join us on a trip down memory lane as we take a look at today's artist. Then go to our website, www.goldengems.net, where we also look at more of their career and play some of their most unforgettable great hits, which we are unable to share on the podcast. We invite you to join us there also. But for now, sit back and relax as we talk about the life of today's unforgettable artist of the golden days of radio. Welcome back to Golden Gems, our podcast today. We're covering the Beatles. In March 1957, John Lennon, then aged 16, formed a skiffle group with several friends from Quarry Bank High School in Liverpool. They briefly called themselves the Blackjacks, before changing their name to the Quarrymen. Before changing their name to the Quarrymen, after discovering that another local group was already using the name, 15-year-old Paul McCartney joined them as a rhythm guitarist shortly after he and Lennon met that July. In February 1958, McCartney invited his friend George Harrison to watch the band. The 15-year-old auditioned for Lennon, impressing him with his playing, but Lennon initially thought Harrison was too young for the band. After a month of Harrison's persistence, during a second meeting arranged by McCartney, he performed the lead guitar part in the instrumental song Raunchy on the upper deck of a Liverpool bus, and they enlisted him as their lead guitarist. By January 1959, Lennon's Quarry Bank friends had left the group, and he began his studies at the Liverpool College of Art. The three guitarists, billing themselves as Johnny and the Moondogs, were playing rock and roll wherever they could find a drummer. Lennon's art school friends, Stuart Sutcliffe, who had just sold one of his paintings and was persuaded to purchase a bass guitar with the proceeds, joined in January 1960. It was he who suggested changing the band's name to Beatles, as a tribute to Buddy Holly and the Crickets. By early July, they had refashioned themselves as the Silver Beatles, and by the middle of August shortened the name to the Beatles. Alan Williams, the Beatles' unofficial manager, arranged a residency for them in Hamburg, and for this they auditioned and hired drummer Pete Best in mid-August 1960. The band, now a five-piece band, departed Liverpool for Hamburg four days later, contracted to club owner Bruno Kuschmeider for what would be a three-and-a-half-month residency. During the next two years, the Beatles were resident for periods in Hamburg where they used Preluden both recreationally and to maintain their energy through all-night performances. In 1961, during their second Hamburg engagement, Kircher cut Sutcliffe's hair in the exi or existentialist style, later adopted by the other Beatles. When Sutcliffe decided to leave the band early that year, and resume his art studies in Germany, McCartney took up the bass. Producer Bert Kempert contracted what was now a four-piece group 
until 1962, and he used them as Tony Sheridan's backing band on a series of recordings for Polydor Records. As part of the sessions, the Beatles were signed to Polydor for one year, credited to Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, the single My Bonnie, recorded in June 1961 and released four months later, reached number 32, Muskie Marked Chart. In November 1961, during one of the group's frequent performances at the Cavern Club, they encountered Brian Epstein, a local record store owner and music columnist. He later recalled, I immediately liked what I heard. They were fresh, they were honest, and they had what I thought was a sort of presence, a star quality. Epstein courted the band over the next couple of months, and they appointed him as their manager in January 1962. Throughout early and mid-1962, Epstein sought to free the Beatles from their contractual obligations to Bert Kempert Productions. He eventually negotiated a one-month early release from their contract in exchange for one last recording session in Hamburg. Tragedy greeted them on their return to Germany in April when a distraught Kircher met them at the airport with news of Sutcliffe's death the previous day from what was later determined as a brain hemorrhage. After a New Year's Day audition, Decca Records rejected the band with a comment. Guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. However, three months later, producer George Martin signed the Beatles to EMI's Parlophone label. Martin's first recording session with the Beatles took place at EMI's Abbey Road Studios in London on June 6, 1962. Ringo Starr left Rory Storm and the Hurricanes to join them. A September 4th session at EMI yielded a recording of Love Me Do, featuring Starr on drums, but a dissatisfied Martin hired drummer Andy White for the band's third session a week later, which produced recordings of Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and P.S. I Love You. Released in early October, Love Me Do peaked at number 17 on the record retailer chart. Their television debut came later that month with a live performance on a regional news program, People and Places. After Martin suggested re-recording Please Please Me at a faster tempo, the studio session in late November yielded that recording, of which Martin accurately predicted, you've just made your first number one. In December of 1962, the Beatles concluded their fifth and final Hamburg residency. By 1963, they had agreed that all four band members would contribute vocals to their albums, including Starr, despite his restricted vocal range, to validate his standing in the group. Lennon and McCartney had established a songwriting partnership, and as the band's success grew, their dominant collaboration limited Harrison's opportunities as a lead vocalist. Epstein, to maximize the Beatles' commercial potential, encouraged them to adopt a professional approach to performing. Lennon recalled him saying, Look, if you really want to get in these bigger places, you're going to have to change. Stop eating on stage. Stop swearing. Stop smoking. 
Lennon said, we used to dress how we liked, off and on stage. He tells us that jeans were not particularly smart, and could we possibly manage to wear proper trousers? But he didn't want us to suddenly look square. He'd let us have our own sense of individuality. On February 11, 1963, the Beatles recorded 10 songs during a single studio session for their debut LP, Please Please Me. The album was supplemented by the four tracks already released on their first two singles. After the moderate success of Love Me Do, the single Please Please Me met with a more emphatic reception. Released in 1963, in January, two months ahead of the album of the same name, the song reached number one on every UK chart except the record retailer, where it peaked at number two. Recalling how the Beatles rushed to deliver a debut album, bashing out Please Please Me in a Day, All Music's Stephen Thomas Erlewine comments, decades after its release, the album still sounds fresh, precisely because of its intense origins. Released in March 1963, the album initiated a run during which 11 of their 12 studio albums released in the United Kingdom through 1970 reached number one. The band's third single, From Me to You, came out in April and was also a chart-topping hit. Starting an almost unbroken string, of 17 British number one singles for the Beatles, including all but one of the 18 they released over the next six years. Issued in August, the band's fourth single, She Loves You, achieved the fastest sales of any record in the United Kingdom up to that time, selling three quarters of a million copies in under four weeks. It became their first single to sell a million copies and remained the biggest selling record in the United Kingdom until 1978. Their commercial success brought increased media exposure, to which the Beatles responded with an irreverent and comical attitude that defied the expectations of pop musicians at the time, inspiring even more interest. The band toured the UK three times in the first half of the year, a four-week tour that began in February, the Beatles' first nationwide preceded three-week tours in March and May through June. As their popularity spread, a frenzied adulation of the group took hold. Greeted with riotous enthusiasm by screaming fans, the press dubbed the phenomenon Beatlemania. Although not billed as tour leaders, the Beatles overshadowed American acts Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez during the February engagements and assumed top billing by audience demand, something no British act had previously accomplished while touring with artists from the U.S. A similar situation arose during their May through June tour with Roy Orbison. In late October, the Beatles began a five-day tour of Sweden, their first time abroad since the final Hamburg engagement of December 1962. On their return to the U.K., on October 31st, several hundred screaming fans greeted them in heavy rain Heathrow Airport. Around 50 to 100 journalists and photographers, as well as representatives from the BBC, also joined the airport reception, the first of more 
than 100 such events. The next day, the band began its fourth tour of Britain within nine months. This one scheduled for six weeks. In mid-November, as Beatlemania intensified, police resorted to using high-pressure water hoses to control the crowd before a concert in Plymouth. It's like taking care of a riot. <laughs> in a reversal of then-standard practice, EMI released the With the Beatles album, ahead of the impending single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, with a song excluded to maximize the single sales. The album caught the attention of music critic William Mann of the Times, who suggested that Lennon and McCartney were the outstanding English composers of 1963. The newspaper published a series of articles in which Mann offered detailed analyses of the music, lending it respectability. Well, the Beatles became the second album in UK chart history to sell a million copies, a figure previously reached only by the 1958 South Pacific soundtrack. When writing the sleeve notes for the album, the band's press officer, Tony Barrow, used the superlative, The Fabulous Foursome, which the media widely adopted as the Fab Four. EMI's American subsidiary, Capitol Records, hindered the Beatles' release in the United States for more than a year by initially declining to issue their music, including their first three singles. Epstein brought a demo copy of I Want to Hold Your Hand to Capitol's Brown Meggs, who signed the band and arranged for a $40,000 U.S. marketing campaign. American chart success began after disc jockey Carl James of AM radio station WWDC in Washington, D.C., obtained a copy of the British single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, in mid-December of 63, and began playing it on the air. Taped copies of the song soon circulated among other radio stations throughout the U.S. This caused an increase in demand, leading Capital to bring forward the release of I Want to Hold Your Hand by three weeks, issued on December 26th with the band's previously scheduled debut there just three weeks away, I Want to Hold Your Hand sold million copies, becoming a number one hit in the U.S. by mid-January. On February 7th, 1964, the Beatles left the U.K. with an estimated 4,000 fans gathered at Heathrow waving and screaming as the aircraft took off. Upon landing in New York's John F. Kennedy Airport, an uproarious crowd estimated at 3,000 gathered to greet them. They gave their first live U.S. television performance two days later on The Ed Sullivan Show, watched by approximately 73 million viewers in over 23 million households, or 34% of the American population. Biographer Jonathan Gould writes that according to the Nielsen Rating Service, it was the largest audience had ever been recorded for an American television program. The next morning, the Beatles awoke to a largely negative critical consensus in the U.S., but the day later, at their first U.S. concert, Beatlemania erupted at the Washington Coliseum. Back in New York the following day, the Beatles met with another strong reception, during two shows at Carnegie Hall. The band flew to Florida, 
where they appeared on the weekly Ed Sullivan Show a second time, before another 70 million viewers, before returning to the UK on February 22nd. The group's popularity generated unprecedented interest in British music, and many other UK acts subsequently made their American debuts, successfully touring over the next three years in what was termed the British Invasion. The Beatles' success in the U.S. opened the door for a successive string of British beat groups and pop acts, such as Dave Clark Five, The Animals, Petula Clark, The Kinks, and The Rolling Stones to achieve success in America. During the week of 4th April 1964, the Beatles held 12 positions on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart, including the top five. Capitol Records' lack of interest throughout 1963 did not go unnoticed, and a competitor, United Artists Records, encouraged their film division to offer the Beatles a three-motion picture deal, primarily for the commercial potential of the soundtracks in the U.S. directed by Richard Lester. A Hard Day's Night involved the band for six weeks in March through April 1964 as they played themselves in a musical comedy. The film premiered in London and New York in July and August, respectively, and was an international success, with some critics drawing a comparison with the Marx Brothers. Touring internationally in June and July, the Beatles staged 37 shows over 27 days in Denmark, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. In August and September, they returned to the U.S. with a 30-concert tour of 23 cities. Generating intense interest once again, the month-long tour attracted between 10,000 and 20,000 fans to each 30-minute performance in cities from San Francisco to New York. In August, journalist Al Aronowitz arranged for the Beatles to meet Bob Dylan. Visiting the band on their New York hotel suite, Dylan introduced them to cannabis. Gould points out the musical and cultural significance of this meeting, before which the musicians' respective fan bases were perceived as inhabiting two separate subcultural worlds. Dylan's audience of college kids Dylan's audience of college kids with artistic or intellectual leanings, a dawning political and social idealism, mildly bohemian style, contrasted with their fans, veritable teeny boppers, kids in high school or grade school whose lives were totally wrapped up in the commercialized popular culture of television, radio, pop records, fan magazines, and teen fashion. To many of Dylan's followers in the folk music scene, the Beatles were seen as idolaters, not idealists. Within six months of the meeting, according to Gould, Lennon would be making records on which he openly imitated Dylan's nasal drone, brittle strum, and introspective vocal persona. And six months after that, Dylan began performing with a backing band and electric instrumentation, and dressed in the height of mod fashion. As a result, Gould continues the traditional division between folk 
and rock enthusiasts nearly evaporated. As the Beatles fans began to mature in their outlook and Dylan's audience embraced the new youth-driven pop culture, during the 1964 U.S. tour, the group were confronted with racial segregation in the country at the time. When informed that the venue for their September 11th concert, the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida, was segregated, the Beatles said they would refuse to perform unless the audience was integrated. Lennon stated, We never played as segregated audiences, and we aren't going to start now. I'd sooner lose our appearance money. City officials relented and agreed to follow an integrated show. The group also canceled the reservations at the whites-only Hotel George Washington in Jacksonville. For their subsequent U.S. tours in 1965 and 1966, the Beatles included clauses and contracts stipulating that shows be integrated. According to Gould, the Beatles' fourth studio LP, Beatles for Sale, evidenced a growing conflict between the commercial pressures of their global success and their creative ambitions. They had intended the album, recorded between August and October 1964, to continue the format established by A Hard Day's Night, which, unlike their first two LPs, contained only original songs. They had nearly exhausted their backlog of songs on the previous album, and given the challenge constant international touring posed to their songwriting efforts, Lennon admitted, material's becoming a hell of a problem. As a result, six covers from their extensive repertoire were chosen to complete the album. Released in early December, its eight original compositions stood out demonstrating the growing maturity of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership. In early 1965, following a dinner with Lennon, Harrison, and their wives, Harrison's dentist, John Riley, secretly added LSD to their coffee. Lennon described the experience, It was just terrifying, but it was fantastic. I was pretty stunned for a month or two. He and Harrison subsequently became regular users of the drug, joined by Starr on at least one occasion. Harrison's use of psychedelic drugs encouraged his path to meditation and Hinduism. He commented, For me it was like a flash. The first time I had acid, it just opened up something in my head that was inside of me, and I realized a lot of things. I didn't learn them because I already knew them, but that happened to be the key that opened the door to reveal them. From the moment I had that, I wanted to have it all the time, these thoughts about the Yogas and the Himalayas and the Ravi's music. McCartney was initially reluctant to try it, but he eventually did so in late 1966. He became the first Beatle to discuss LSD publicly declaring in a magazine interview that it opened my eyes and made me a better, more honest, more tolerant member of society. Controversy erupted in June 1965 when Queen Elizabeth II appointed all four Beatles members of the Order of the British Empire, the MBE, after Prime Minister Harold Wilson nominated them for the award. 
In protest, the honor was at that time primarily bestowed upon military veterans and civic leaders. Some conservative MBE recipients returned their insignia. In July, the Beatles' second film, Help, was released, again directed by Lester. Described as mainly a relentless spoof of Bond, it inspired a mixed response among both reviewers and the band. McCartney said, Help was great, but it wasn't our film. We were sort of guest stars. It was fun, but basically, as an idea for a film, it was a bit wrong. The soundtrack was dominated by Lennon, who wrote and sang lead on most of the songs, including the two singles, Help and Ticket to Ride. The Help album, the group's fifth studio LP, mirrored a hard day's night by featuring soundtrack songs on side one and additional songs from the same sessions on side two. The LP contained all original material, save for two covers, Act Naturally and Dizzy Miss Lizzie. They were the last covers the band would include on an album, except for Let It Be's brief rendition of the traditional Liverpool folk song, Maggie May. The band expanded their use of vocal overdubs on Help and incorporated classical instruments into some arrangements, including a string quartet on the pop ballad Yesterday. Yesterday has inspired the most cover versions of any song ever written. With help, the Beatles became the first rock group to be nominated for a Grammy Award for Album of the Year. In mid-October, the Beatles entered the recording studio. For the first time when making an album, they had an extended period without other major commitments. Released in December, Rubber Soul was hailed by critics as a major step forward in the maturity and complexity of the band's music. Their thematic reach was beginning to expand as they embraced deeper aspects of romance and philosophy, a development that NEMS executive Peter Brown attributed to the band members' now habitual use of marijuana. Lennon referred to Rubber Soul as the pot album, and Starr said, Grass was really influential in a lot of our changes, especially with the writers. And because they were writing different material, we were playing differently. Harrison called Rubber Soul his favorite album, and Starr referred to it as the departure record. McCartney has said, We'd had our cute period, and now it was time to expand. However, recording engineer Norman Smith later stated, that the studio sessions revealed signs of growing conflict within the group. The clash between John and Paul was becoming obvious, he wrote. And as far as Paul was concerned, George could do no right. In 2003, Rolling Stone ranked Rubber Soul fifth among the 500 greatest albums of all time, and all music's Richie Underberger describes it as one of the classic folk rock Records. Capitol Records from December 1963, when it began issuing Beatle recordings for the U.S. market, exercised complete control over format, compiling distinct U.S. albums from band recordings and issuing songs of their choosing as singles. In June 1966, 
the capital LP yesterday and today, caused an uproar with its cover, which portrayed the grinning beetles dressed in butcher's overalls, accompanied by raw meat and mutilated plastic paper dolls. According to Beatle biographer Bill Harry, it has been incorrectly suggested that this was meant as a satirical response to the way Capitol had butchered the U.S. versions of the band albums. Thousands of copies of the LP had a new cover pasted over the original, an unpeeled first state copy fetched $10,500 at a December 2005 auction. During a tour of the Philippines the month after the Yesterday and Today Fuhrer, the Beatles unintentionally snubbed the nation's first lady, Imelda Marcos, who had expected them to attend a breakfast reception at the presidential palace. When presented with the invitation, Epstein politely declined on the band member's behalf, as it had never been his policy to accept such official invitations. They soon found that the Marcos regime was unaccustomed to taking no for an answer. The resulting riots endangered the group, and they escaped the country with difficulty. Immediately afterwards, the band members visited India for the first time. We're more popular now than Jesus. I don't know who will go first, rock and roll or Christianity, said John Lennon publicly in 1966. Almost as soon as they returned home, the Beatles faced a fierce backlash from U.S. religious and social conservatives, as well as the Ku Klux Klan, over the comment Lennon had made in March interview with the British reporter Maureen Cleave. Christianity will go, Lennon had said. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins for me. His comments went virtually unnoticed in England, but when U.S. Teenage Fans magazine Datebook printed them five months later, it sparked a controversy with Christians in America's conservative Bible Belt region. The Vatican issued a protest, and bans on Beatle records were imposed by Spanish and Dutch stations and South Africa's National Broadcasting Service. At a press conference, Lennon pointed out, if I'd said television was more, if I had said television was more popular than Jesus, I might have gotten away with it. He claimed that he was referring to how other people viewed their success. But at the prompting of reporters, he concluded, if you want me to apologize, if that will make you happy, then okay, I'm sorry. Released in August, a week before the Beatles' finally tour, Revolver marked another artistic step forward for the group. The album featured sophisticated songwriting, studio experimentation, and greatly expanded repertoire of musical styles, ranging from innovative classical string arrangements to psychedelia. Among the experimental songs that Revolver featured was Tomorrow Never Knows, the lyrics for which Lennon drew from Timothy Leary's The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Its creation involved eight tape decks distributed about the EMI building, each staffed by an engineer or band member who randomly varied the movement of a tape loop. 
while Martin created a composite recording by sampling the incoming data. McCartney's Eleanor Rigby made prominent use of a string octet. Gould describes it as a true hybrid, conforming to no recognizable style or genre of song. Harrison's emergence as a songwriter was reflected in three of his compositions appearing on the record. Among these, Taxman, which opened the album, marked the first example of the Beatles making a political statement through their music. In 2003, Rolling Stone ranked Revolver as the third greatest album of all time. As preparations were made for a tour of the U.S., the Beatles knew that their music would hardly be heard. Having originally used Vox AC-30 amplifiers, they later required more powerful 100-watt amplifiers, specially designed by Vox for them as they moved into larger venues in 1964, but these were still inadequate. Struggling to compete with the volume of sound generated by screaming fans, the band had grown increasingly bored with the routine of performing live. Recognizing that their shows were no longer about the music, they decided to make the August tour their last. The band's concert at San Francisco's Candlestick Park on August 29th was their last commercial concert. It marked the end of four years, dominated by almost non-stop touring that included over 1,400 concert appearances internationally. Freed from the burden of touring, the Beatles embraced an increasingly experimental approach as they recorded Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band beginning in late November 1966. According to engineer Jeff Emerick, the album's recording took over 700 hours. He recalled the band's insistence that everything on Sgt. Pepper had to be different. We had microphones right down the bells of brass instruments, headphones turned into microphones attached to the violins. We used giant primitive oscillators to vary the speed of the instruments and vocals, and we had tapes chopped to pieces and stuck together upside down and the wrong way around. Parts of A Day in the Life featured a 40-piece orchestra. The sessions initially yield in a non-album, double-A-side single, Strawberry Fields Forever and Petty Lane. In 1967, the Sgt. Pepper's LP followed with a rush release in May. The musical complexion of the records, created using relatively primitive four-track recording technology, astounded contemporary artists. Among music critics, acclaim for the album was virtually universal. Gould writes, The overwhelming consensus is that the Beatles had created a popular masterpiece, a rich, sustained, and overflowing work of collaborative genius, whose bold ambition and startling originality dramatically enlarged the possibilities and raised the expectations of what the experience of listening to popular music on record should be. In the basis of this perception, Sgt. Pepper became the catalyst for an explosion of mass enthusiasm for album-formatted rock that would revolutionize both the aesthetics and the economics of the record business 
in ways that far outstripped the earlier pop explosions triggered by the Elvis phenomenon of 1956 and the Beatlemania phenomena of 1963. In the wake of Sgt. Pepper, the underground and mainstream press widely publicized the Beatles as leaders of youth culture, as well as lifestyle revolutionaries. The album was the first major pop rock LP to include its complete lyrics, which appeared on the back cover. These lyrics were the subject of critical analysis. The heavy mustaches worn by the group reflected the growing influence of hippie style, while cultural historian Jonathan Harris describes their brightly colored parodies of military uniforms as knowingly anti-authoritarian and anti-establishment display. Sgt. Pepper topped the UK charts for 23 consecutive weeks, with a further four weeks at number one in the period through February 1968. With 2.5 million copies sold within three months of its release, Sgt. Pepper's initial commercial success exceeded that of all previous Beatles albums. It sustained its immense popularity into the 21st century, while breaking numerous sales records. In 2003, Rolling Stone ranked Sgt. Pepper at number one on its list of the greatest albums of all time. On June 25th, the Beatles performed their forthcoming single, All You Need Is Love, to an estimated 350 million viewers on Our World, the first live global television link. Released a week later during the Summer of Love, the song was adopted as a flower power anthem. The Beatles' use of psychedelic drugs was at its height during that summer. In July and August, the group pursued interests related to similar utopian-based ideology, including a week-long investigation into the possibility of starting an island-based commune off the coast of Greece. On 24 August, the group was introduced to the Maharashi Mahesh Yogi in London. The next day, they traveled to Bangor for his transcendental meditation retreat. On August 27th, their manager's assistant, Peter Brown, phoned to inform them that Epstein had died. The coroner ruled the death an accidental carbitol overdose. Although it was widely rumored to be a suicide, his death left the group disoriented and fearful about the future. Lennon recalled, We collapsed. I knew that we were in trouble then. I didn't really have any misconceptions about our ability to do anything other than play music, and I was scared. Harris's then-wife, Patty Boyd, remembered that Paul and George were in complete shock. I don't think it could have been worse if they had heard that their own fathers had dropped dead. In February 1968, the Beatles traveled to Maharashi Mahesh Yogi's ashram in Rishikesh, India, to take part in a three-month meditation guide course. Their time in India marked one of the band's most prolific periods, yielding numerous songs, including a majority of those on their next album. However, Starr left after only 10 days, unable to stomach the food, <laughs> and McCartney eventually grew bored and departed a month later. For Lennon and Harrison, creativity turned to question 
when an electronics technician known as Magic Alex, <laughs> what a name, suggested that the Maharashi was attempting to manipulate them. When he alleged that the Maharashi had made sexual advances to women attendees, a persuaded Lenin left abruptly just two months into the course, bringing an unconvinced Harrison and the remainder of the group's entourage with him. In anger, Lenin wrote a scathing song titled Maharashi, renamed Sexy Sadie, to avoid potential legal issues. McCartney said, we made a mistake. We thought that there was more to him than there was. From late May to mid-October 1968, the group recorded what became The Beatles, a double LP commonly known as The White Album, for its virtually featureless cover. During this time, relations between the members grew openly divisive. Starr quit for two weeks, leaving his bandmates to record Back in the USSR and Dear Prudence as a trio, with McCartney filling in on drums. Lennon had lost interest in collaborating with McCartney, whose contribution, Ubladi Ublada, he scorned as granny music shit. Tensions were further aggravated by Lennon's romantic preoccupations with avant-garde artist Yoko Ono, whom he insisted on bringing to the sessions, despite the group's well-established understanding that girlfriends were not allowed in the studio. McCartney's recalled that the album wasn't a pleasant one to make. Ian Lennon identified the sessions as the start of the band's breakup. Issued in November, the White Album was the band's first Apple Records album release, although EMI continued to own their recordings. The record attracted more than 2 million advance orders, selling nearly 4 million copies in the U.S. in a little over a month. Its tracks dominate the playlists of American radio stations. Its lyric content was the focus of much analysis by the counterculture. Despite its popularity, reviewers were largely confused by the album's content, and it failed to inspire the level of critical writing that Sgt. Pepper had. General critical opinion eventually turned in favor of the White Album, and in 2003, Rolling Stones ranked it as the 10th greatest album of all time. Let It Be was the Beatles' final album release. The project's impetus came from an idea Martin attributes to McCartney, who suggested that they record an album of new material and rehearse it, then perform it before a live audience for the very first time on record and on film. Originally intended for a one-hour television program to be called Beatles at Work, in the event, much of the album's content came from studio work beginning in January 1969, many hours of which were captured on film by director Michael Lindsay Hogg. Martin said that the project was not at all a happy recording experience. It was a time when relations between the Beatles were at their lowest ebb. Lennon describes the larger impromptu sessions as hell, the most miserable on earth. And Harrison, the low of all times, irritated by McCartney and Lennon, Harrison walked out for five days. New strain continued to develop between the band. 
and McCartney file suit for the dissolution of the Beatles' contractual partnership on December 31, 1970. Legal disputes continued long after their breakup, and the dissolution was not formalized until December 29, 1974, when Lennon signed the paperwork, terminating the partnership while on vacation with his family at Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. In December 1980, Lennon was shot and killed outside his New York City apartment. Harrison rewrote the lyrics of his song, All Those Years Ago, in Lennon's honor. With star on drums and McCartney and his wife Linda contributing backing vocals, the song was released as a single in May 1981. McCartney's own tribute, Here Today, appeared on the Tug of War album in April 1982. In 1987, Harrison's Cloud Nine album included When We Was Fab, a song about the Beatlemania era. In 1988, the Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, their first year of eligibility. Harrison and Starr attended the ceremony with Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono, and his two sons, Julian and Sean. McCartney declined to attend, citing unresolved business differences that would make him feel like a complete hypocrite waving and smiling with them at a fake reunion. Harrison died from metastatic lung cancer in November 2001. McCartney and Starr were among the musicians who performed at the concert for George, organized by Eric Clapton and Harrison's widow, Olivia. The tribute event took place at the Royal Albert Hall on the first anniversary of Harrison's death. On January 26, 2014, McCartney and Starr performed together at the 56th Annual Grammy Awards held at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. The following day, the night that changed America, a Grammy salute to the Beatles TV special was taped in the Los Angeles Convention Center's West Hall. It aired on the 9th of February the exact date and at the same time and on the same network as the original broadcast of the Beatles' first U.S. TV appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show 50 years earlier. In December 2015, the Beatles released their catalog for streaming on various streaming music services, including Spotify and Apple Music. So much more can be said about the Beatles, but their career and influence was perhaps best summed up by the following quote. Former Rolling Stone associate, editor Robert Greenfield, compared the Beatles to Picasso as artists who broke through the constraints of their time period to come up with something that was unique and original. In the form of popular music, no one will ever be more revolutionary, more creative, and more distinctive than were the Beatles. We hope you've enjoyed our review of the Beatles. If you've not already done so, we invite you to go to www.goldengems.net for a review of some other aspects of their career and listen to some of their culture-changing music. And be sure to join us next time for a look at another unforgettable entertainer from the golden days of radio.
Thanks for being with us today. We hope you're having as much enjoyment as we are, reliving some of the unforgettable memories of the golden days of radio. To learn more about the career of today's artists and listen to several of their greatest hits, we invite you to go to our website, www.goldengems.net. May we also encourage you to tell your friends about the show. We'd love to have them join us in these little trips down memory lane. And as always, we invite your feedback or comments on goldengemsradio at gmail.com. So until next episode, this is Dave and Bill heading back into the archives to dust off some more unforgettable memories to share with you on Golden Gems. <laughs>